Hey everyone and welcome to another episode of the Convergence podcast. I'm your host Siddhartha Valuri and this is going to be episode 41 with Eflam Mercier. We went really in depth into Eflam's passion for solopunk themes and how creating new narratives in storytelling is important. They also shared ideas about cooperatives and artist collectives and how these organizational structures can help the coming generation of artists. This episode was packed with a lot of information and a lot of knowledge so I hope you stick around till the end of the episode and get a lot of value from it. So let's go. So thank you once again for coming on the podcast. I remember listening to your podcast way back. Thank you for having me. When you're welcome. Um I think you were on Mache's podcast like quite a few years back on Art Cafe. Mhm. And I think that was the first time I ever listened to it again. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's interesting that was probably my first um encounter with it your work good. yeah and it's been great seeing the amount of work you've done since then and you're quite a prolific artist and you've been working for quite a while now so excited to go deeper into your thought process today all right excited to be able to share whatever i can um i'm curious what were your original inspirations that drew you towards art because the kind of work that you do right now is quite focused towards the climate activism and the solar punk styles and themes that are derived from that style of thinking but i'm not too sure that those things existed when you were probably getting inspired to do art um actually it did and that's a very very good question um so one of my first uh, actually wanted to be a graphic uh, novel artist mm-hmm. like a comic book or manga you know like i just loved like dragon ball z I loved um you know all the all the you know French like uh Bidi classics mm-hmm. you know uh there was like the um uh Jodorovich you know universe no, I'm not uh, uh with Mobius okay. and Jodorovich Alejandro Jodorovich uh and so there's like plenty of amazing material but um I think <clears throat> there wasn't much solar punk I think there was like maybe one TV show where like the 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 earth was like slightly destroyed and like it was polluted i think that inspired me to make like solar punk little graphic novels mm-hmm. and i submitted some of them to a contest and like i i i won one because nobody else showed up <laughs> showing up is very important that's a very good point sometimes yeah if you show up and nobody else show up you win <laughs> so uh it's um but i remember through that i got the opportunity to like a uh, meet an art, uh, um graphic novel artist uh named Bruno de Flock and uh he was like very attached to um the peninsula the 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 Braise the Breton uh place which is uh next to France mm-hmm. uh on the northwest and um yeah i think like marrying the two is this idea of like i love this local place where i'm from and this place has a history of of disasters either natural disasters that have been caused by climate change or like the climate has changed or the relationship of people to the land has changed or there has been a natural disaster and in the case of my fishing community uh right where i was born and kind of like was raised on my life uh is where shell uh ordered amoco oil uh to kind of transit and they uh tanked like they crashed the the super tanker with oil leaking all over the fish oh <laughs> and the coast in 1978 and it was shell and amoco so it's actually exxon mobil and shell those are companies that still exist today and um and the, so it's really this thing of like i care about this place and so i want to do art that is about this place that kind of like is 
a representation of my love for this local uh, place. And um, yeah, like when you really go deep on the history of any place, you realize that any place has been used at some point as an ecological quote unquote sacrifice zone, mm -hmm. which means that the government or the corporations just didn't care about the people and the creatures living there to the point where it's just where they went and they dumped their hydrocarbon and petrochemicals. And so this is, uh, this is definitely what my art wants to speak to. And um, what I was trying at first is doing art based on, you know, kind of like random samplings of the world and random problems. And then I went back to the local. Now I'm trying to find ways to marry it, right? Uh, while still being like respectful, because it's like, there's this notion of, hey, it's maybe not my story to tell, you know? Um, and for example, I was working on this idea of like, um, urban farming and, and resiliency of food in Kampala, Uganda. Mm -hmm. But then I was like, okay, well, maybe it's a story better told by a, a you know, a native like an person artist native to that place, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. And maybe I can like provide a little funding for illustrations that talk about food resiliency in Kampala, mm -hmm. you know, and then that's, uh, you know, that's better. Or maybe like there's internet funding now. And it's like, you don't even need, <laughs> you know, you don't even need outside, you know, funding of yeah. any kind to kind of make those conversations happen. I think, I, I agree with that to an extent where people who are native to a certain location may be more well-versed with maybe mm -hmm. spreading that message better. But I think nowadays people tend to take it to such an extent that they are unwilling to even talk about issues from somewhere yeah, else, yeah. which is also not a good place yeah. to be in, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to find the balance mm -hmm. and trying to stay truthful and not like, you know, speak over other cultures and their struggles, uh, especially when... You know, there's a level of struggle where, you know, there's this notion of, are you like a person who's like comfortable right now who's doing environmentalism, mm -hmm. or are you a person who's like, who's actually being harmed by those corporations who's doing environmentalism? And those are two very different. Like one is survival based, and one is like comfort and the idea of like nature as a thing separate, mm -hmm. right? Versus the idea of like, no, no, what if the city is a nature and right now it is a polluted nature and we don't want to live in it, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, uh, very much this kind of, this kind of stuff. Yeah. That's an interesting um, point actually, because especially as artists, sometimes we always look at nature as an aesthetic, not as mm -hmm. something that it is actually in real life, because we're just looking it's at it from an art perspective, not from a reality yeah. perspective. Yeah. 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 It's always there. Mm -hmm. Uh, like if you, I, you know, I love like walking down the street and watching, um, like abandoned spaces. Mm -hmm and how tall the grass grows. And it's funny because the landscapers somehow, like one time they cut the grass all around, but there was a plot that was unmanaged. And because it was unmanaged, it became a wilderness in like a year or two. And you could tell the length of the grass. And I was like, literally, if you do not constantly cut nature, nature comes back uh, very, very quickly. And ecosystems with especially, okay, that's an important story. It's the story of stewardship, right? Because um, there's a very prevalent story. I don't know if it's neoliberalism or capitalism or what it is, but it's the story that like humans are the virus and that like we ought to use technology to dominate nature, but it's terrible what we do to it, but it's okay because we're humans and we're different than nature. Mm -hmm. And no, like we're not different than nature. We're part of it. And therefore when we hurt nature to an extraordinary extent with, you know, extractive industries, uh, you know, smelting and, and metals and all this stuff. When we do that, we do this damage to ourselves. 
and we won't be able to use technology to repair this damage, you know, yeah. and it shows up in the incidence of asthma with people who live in the proximity of oil rigs due to benzene pollution. It shows up in um, the way that, yeah, like people get all kinds of uh, autoimmune disease due to the, you know, the all this roundup, you know, mm. petrochemicals and stuff like this. Um, it really, it comes from this problem of seeing nature as a separate entity instead of uh, thinking that like nature is in your city. It's just struggling to come out of the concrete. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I guess that's when, I mean, thinking about it as artists and designers is important because so when I was studying architecture, sustainable architecture is such an important subject that's mm -hmm. being developed right now. And there are a lot of architects working on integrating nature with their buildings and creating like terrace farming within the structures that they're building for the mm -hmm. next decades. So as artists, how are you, you know, trying to spread your message and contribute in a positive manner? Yeah, uh, actually, instead of, you know, talking from my own words, I thought I could share some words from the members of uh, the Artists Extinction Group. Sure. So I've asked uh, some members to share some message. And uh, so Xin Yan, um, she writes, I think playing the capitalism game is unfortunately what we artists have to do. We all have bills to pay and people to take care of. However, we can sell art and other products that educates, informs, and sways our audience towards a more eco-friendly future, mm -hmm. end quote. Um, Solarpunk could be an example, right? So then she continues, quote, I personally believe in investing our teenagers now to equip them with the tools to solve the crisis when they grow up. Most teenagers are victims of the global crisis and they are already passionate about saving it. All they need is the education and time, end quote. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, uh, I just wanted to uh, go a bit deeper into that aspect of like, we are part of the system that exists because at the end of the day, you need mm -hmm. to eat, you need to pay your bills, whether you're an artist or in any other field for that matter. And I guess storytelling becomes a very important part there, right? Because the kind of mm -hmm. stories that we see in movies or in comics that become part of our reality in our mind. And so as artists, totally. the more The you, way we see the world. Exactly. So you trying to portray solar punk visions allows you to spread your message in a certain manner through that art. Yeah, and um, hopefully it's also that like the lens and narrative frames specifically, because um, you like, let's say there is any situation in the world that is caused by climate change, mm -hmm. right? So like you have a natural disaster, you have to evacuate or not evacuate. That's usually a decision. Mm -hmm. You have like refugees, do you welcome them the best way you can? Or are you going to be horrible and just leave them in camps and stuff like this, like all the governments of today do? Mm -hmm. um, and when faced with those situations, the lens that we have are horrible today because the media like that we have consumed has been horrible. Mm -hmm. um, like, like if, you, like if you actually look at the content that we consume, like some of it has like eco-fascist tones where it's like, you know what I mean? Like, like the Thanos snap is like good <laughs> because the, the whales are coming back like that. You know, it's like a depopulation narrative. Like, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, maybe it's just my interpretation of it, but I think we have to be extremely careful about like, how do we portray narratives of ecological change and the relation of that to population? Because it, it will be used at some point in wars or in, in horrible justifications, in justifications of horrible mm -hmm. things. In that um, you just make it justify that like, you have some people surviving and some people not surviving in climate change, you know? and 
due to the overwhelming like unequal nature of it or where it hits and who caused it it's like it's an unacceptable thing obviously it's totally unacceptable and um there's definitely this idea of like i think an artist should communicate the impossibility of the system to keep going because everybody knows that the system can't keep going but i think maybe if the message is so you know obvious that like the civilization is finished that we can then get to work on being honest about like what does uh, deep adaptation look like what does you know extreme scale down of the fossil fuel industry within 10 years looks like uh, how, how do you create a good story or narrative within this because for people to consume something as entertainment so yep. called it needs to engage that's with them the, right that's the yeah 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 yeah. So that's the part I definitely struggle with. Um you need characters mm-hmm. is what I'm finding out. So that's why I'm working on characters mm-hmm. and character development. Um you definitely need it because the ideas are too abstract by themselves. Right. Uh be, for 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 most people and that makes sense uh that the ideas are too abstract. I think um I I often say that it, it is our refusal to engage with the problem of climate change in the complex manner. that is the reason why complexity is breaking down so when you look at like a complex like you know supply chain mm-hmm. um we are not willing to engage with climate change in a complex manner so therefore climate change is breaking down the complexity of civilization leading to collapse right so uh with the with the shipping problem for example it's that like well you have a pandemic and you haven't protected your workers and you haven't educated them right so you can't so nobody you know and you haven't had a uh, worker safety so as a result nobody wants to work in shipping mm-hmm. right like there's too much injury too much death nobody wants to do it for that kind of thing and as a result you have uh, an increase i think it's like 4x like fourfold increase over the price of container shipping and that has dramatic impacts on the entire you know supply chain of, of capitalism and again it is because the worker safety was not a part of the equation like capitalism was un- unable to perceive this information about the system like that's really that's not that's very pathetic that's that's a system we have today and it's unable to perceive the most crucial information about safety about like do people still want to do this i guess the, when you put it across that way the first thing that genuinely comes to mind is that most people are just trying to you know survive and live their day to day and you are obviously really invested in this personally so that's why you research and you know these facts but mm-hmm, if i look mm-hmm. if i think about just the average artist and designer who perhaps want to contribute in a positive manner but they are too stuck in their loop to just make money to survive how can they actually start thinking about these stories where they can think about these stories in a manner to aid their artistic career at the same time which allows them to live a good life mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, you always have the possibility of making your personal IP that is eco-punk mm-hmm. your portfolio pieces, right. right? That's one option. Um so like, you know, you're still outputting labor that is intent for the capitalist, you know, economy, but you're still infusing it with all of your like personal ideas and philosophies. So I think that's that's cool and laudable. Um the other possibilities is you know you could do a patreon and get funding and get support for doing that kind of work mm-hmm. uh, i support a few patreons that you know do this kind of like eco eco punk art there's not too many so you know there's still yeah uh, i mean it's a like, untapped there's still market. space for solar yeah. punk exactly there's still a lot of space for solar punk patreons i would believe 
um, for Solarpunk video games, like it's a blue ocean, right? Solarpunk is blue ocean. Mm-hmm. And like, if there are any VCs listening to this call, we don't want your money, but we kind of do. <laughs> it's a very complicated relationship. Yeah. You know, we don't want, we want your money, but not your ideas. <laughs> like, and this is how you will make more money. So trust us. Yeah. You want the money, I mean, but the freedom to actually be able to execute the vision that yeah. you might have. Yeah. But obviously, you know, I don't want to ask that. So mm-hmm. I self-fund and, you know, find ways. But uh, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a complicated thing where any amount of funding or money that will come to you will come with a certain level of you can't really criticize too much because that money has come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And very rarely has that money come from somewhere like 100% clean. Um, you know, uh like even some of the companies that I worked for, like I know some of the sources of the funding and I'm like, yeah, I, that's why I resigned. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I do not wish for my paycheck, any percentage of my paycheck to come from the oil industry. That's absolutely unacceptable for me. Uh, I have signed the no fossil fuel pledge. So I'm pretty much contractually required to quit. You know what I mean? And I think it's a very serious thing that we have, that we have to start to, hold each other maybe not hold each other accountable because that sounds like a twitter mob you know coming at you Mm -hmm. but like like as friends like who care you know um don't be like don't be a climate denier it's it's gonna hurt you and your career and your friends and the planet it's gonna hurt everybody it's not like you know i think it's not worth this is where like creating those passion projects and merging it with these themes is a good idea because then you're funding it yourself essentially and you're not accountable to anybody else mm-hmm. in terms of what the messaging should be like. And then you have mm-hmm. the freedom to perhaps collaborate with like-minded people and then kind of develop that project further. And I guess you've been yeah. doing quite a bit yeah. of that. Yeah, but then there's the question of like, okay, what legal structure do we want mm-hmm. to structure this work and not do I want, like do we want, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of like, what if there's no boss? Um, and what if... Um, you know, you make decisions democratically mm-hmm. instead of just the founder makes the decision, right? Which means whoever has the money, so whoever has made money in, in, you know, and that money, again, was not clean. Even the money I made was not fully clean, you know, I didn't quit fast enough, you know, maybe one paycheck had 1% of shell, you know, and so no, no money is clean. So the better ways to do it is to do it on uh, no money. So, like, you know, you figure out ways to do the project for cheap. Or, again, you figure out this way of structuring the work. So if you have a founder and the founder is putting putting down the money or asking VCs to put down the money or asking a bank to put down the money, essentially, they will feel like because they took that financial risk, they deserve the labor of all of the workers in perpetuity and all of their, you know, I mean, all of their labor, mm-hmm. just in exchange for a uh, um, uh, you know, pay. And the problem is they get all of the IP value in perpetuity, mm-hmm. but you just get the salary for the time you're working there, right? You don't get rent for the IP, but the IP is a property. It's like, it's like a house. You get a rent from it, you know? And so um, like right now we have situations where with firms, you know, which is the structure of a founder, it's kind of like landlords, you know? And uh, I don't like that situation in housing and I don't like the situation in employment either. And so an alternative model is cooperative, uh, worker cooperative. And this idea that you own the cooperative together. And so you have like, you have board of director, which are elected, Mm -hmm. you know, within the company. And you can make decisions via a consensus mechanism, 75%. And there's this 
you know, there's this uh, often thing that people say, well, cooperatives are cool, but decisions are slow. Well, the problem is you're not making enough decisions. You're not, make, you're not voting enough. You're not voting often enough. There's no culture of voting. Mm-hmm. The problem is we vote once every four years and we argue about it and it costs about a billion dollars worth of debate <laughs> and lost way, uh, you know, time. And so if that's your metric for what voting looks like, if that's your frame of reference for what voting looks like, of course, you're going to think that voting in a cooperative is slow, that decision making in a cooperative is slow. But I have one also counter argument. Even if it's slow, it could be better decisions. The reason why is because when your workers don't have any financial transparency over like what are how well the company is doing, right? That's a fundamental metric that the workers rarely ever have. The, the workers are kept in the dark about how well the company is doing. And that means that it's not able as a collective to make the best possible decisions because you're relying on one guy. Mm-hmm. And it's a guy because it's usually a guy. It's usually a white guy. You know what I mean? And, and it's, a, it's a limited perspective. No matter how like, woke you try to be, it's a limited perspective. And if your system is a pyramid and you have a limited perspective, your, your people at the bottom can be as diverse as you want. You can have as much gender diversity as you want. It's not going to help. Because the person at the top is making all the decision and has all of these biases and is not listening to other people. How? How? And so that's why. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I mean, it it in an ideal situation it would be that way, right? Where the people working in a very very large studio or firm are privy to all the decisions that are being made at the top level of the company. Mm-hmm. How often do you encounter artists who are genuinely interested in making those kind of decisions and also living with the risks and rewards that come with those decisions? Because I yeah, I, I do agree with you where quite often we are in the dark in terms of how those decisions are being taken. But how many people are really mm-hmm. willing to stick with those decisions and live with the consequences as well? Yeah, yeah. And I think, so I have, I have like uh, two thoughts about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, I feel like, I mean, if if, if you want the li- like economic liberation or freedom liberation of people, you're gonna have to seize the means of production, even if that means learning how do things work. Mm-hmm. You know how our sausage get made. You know how our video games get made. What's what's Git? What's a repository? What's a source control? What's a, you know, what are the programming language do people use? What is C++, C Sharp, Lua, you know, all this stuff. And not necessarily to learn it, like to be a professional in it, but enough to talk and to know how do you interact with other professionals mm-hmm. in terms of like the work output. Like, do you output a mesh? Do you output like a static file? Do you output a script? Do you output, you know, a build of a game? And I think learning all those phases of production is what will liberate us from the kind of like economic control of firms and founders and like we see people who code or who have internet generational wealth control everything. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a good point. I mean, and understanding so I think, okay. the yeah. supply chain and the way a product is made allows you to understand it at a much deeper level and perhaps even gives you the confidence to create your own projects because you know the subject matter at such a deep level. Yeah, yeah. And like the other day, it's totally random. Like somebody on the, on the Discord server was saying like, oh no, like my favorite tool to uh, to like make uh, something, you know, went offline. Mm-hmm. And then I went on GitHub and I saw there was a Docker image. And then I heard like Google Cloud offers free service on another web page, totally random. And then my mind connected the two. I was like, okay, I got free service to host the Docker image that that person said 
is not offline. So I can't have it online. You know, I can bring it back online or service, mm -hmm. right? And that's the means of production. It can be really, really simple. It's, it was five or six commands and they were all listed on the GitHub. It's really easy. Like anyone can do this. You don't have to pay monthly service for anything anymore. Like Photoshop, you don't have to pay, you know what I mean? Like there's many alternatives already that are open source or you can build or you can host for free on a Google machine. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of solutions. Even like, essentially, if you don't have a computer, Google will give you one for free. <laughs> or like, 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 a, like a, it, they will give you $300 of like a virtual computer. If you know a couple of codes, you can do a, like a VNC into it. So you have a virtual desktop into a computer in the cloud that has a GPU. So when we think about access, um, like we think about that the studio, you know, like purchases machines and mm -hmm. stuff for us and does a lot of things for the artist. But I think during the pandemic, a lot of stuff was revealed, you know, like the structural inequalities mm -hmm. was, was revealed and the, the studio, like the physical office, like the contradictions about it was were really revealed during the pandemic. Uh, which is like, what exactly is the office for, you know, and who is it for? Um, and uh, so I think those conversations are really important and interesting. Yeah, I was actually just about to come to the whole aspect of working from home during this last one and a half, two year period. I mean, it's coming to two years at this point. Um, it was almost drilled into the employee's head that you need to work in the studio because of the work environment, so-called. But it's obviously been proven that the biggest of biggest projects have been successfully executed for, with employees or artists and designers working from home. I guess mm -hmm. the dichotomy that I feel over here is that there is a certain element of missing communication with your peers that people do tend to lose yeah. out on. And that is, there is some value to that, but it doesn't need to be something that's happening on a daily basis, I suppose. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. I've, I've done the model where you, you kind of like fly or take the train to all oh, meet up, mm -hmm. you know, and then you like maybe once a year or something. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, like works, but I think it's like, I think like people when they're face to face, I don't know, maybe there's something they try to help each other out. And maybe because of the latency, you can't connect the eyes mm -hmm. or something very, very direct like this, where like, you know, like the brains are like directly connected to the eyes and you can maybe send some, you know, information that we don't really perceive, but on the webcam is not present, mm. you know, this micro information. And maybe that's what leads to like people online being like very cold to each other. That's something where like, I think people have uh, in like remote work have like fired employees in ways that they would have never fired a employee mm. like physically. I think so there's a level of dehumanization uh, that is related to the use of video. Uh, that definitely bothers me. And I don't think the answer is like a super 4D, you know, uh, representation, you know, temporal mesh, you know, deformed and motion captured in real time. I don't think that's what the future looks like. Uh, this is what Zuckerberg tries to convince you the future looks like so that he can rent you, you know, his machines. <laughs> <laughs> so he can rent you his cloud stuff and make you pay or, you know, stay on there for ads. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the reality and the possibilities is like, we have to have much more imagination than this. It could be like a symbolic representation of your mood or like like that you self-report, you know what I mean? It could be, there are many possibilities. Like there are many, many possibilities, essentially. I think um, for me personally, one of the best experiences during the pandemic for communication was actually Clubhouse because it allowed real-time communication mm. with people from across the world in different industries, different fields. And even though there was no video, just because we could hear people in real time, 
and it felt like cool, it was man. like a community discussing things together that really did add quite a lot of value quite a lot of times um i'm curious to know more about this artist versus extinction is it is it like a collective of artists is it a company that you all started together what is the philosophy behind it yeah um so artists versus extinction is a uh, group of artists network of friends who were already horrified after the landmark 2018 report of the international intergovernmental panel on climate change and we saw the amazon fires as undeniable confirmation of the climate crisis that the climate crisis is here mm -hmm. right so you fast forward three years later no one publicly denies climate change anymore so you'd think we'd be celebrating on the discord server uh but no it's a little bit more insidious it's uh natural gas branding itself as an improvement, uh, as a renewable source of energy, a clean source of energy, when it's barely an improvement over coal mm -hmm. due to the methane emissions. Um, so what artists, scientists, and communicators have to realize is that we are way beyond the information deficit model of change, where you assume that things aren't changing because you haven't raised awareness enough about the issue. And we're going to a model of change based on, um, ending state capture by fossil fuel actors. So really it's this idea of like, you have uh, disinformation plus path dependence, which means like, you know, they're lying about, uh, you know, uh, natural gas being like a renewable energy. And um, they're also making us consume natural gas, right? So they are installing natural gas at night instead of a battery, you know, and there's more subsidies for the natural gas, uh, you know, which is a, a thermal plant, which you can pilot, you know. Um, rather than the but then the battery pack or like the risk of drought of the thermal power plant are ignored systemically you know so in an unscientific manner this is not good engineering this will lead to catastrophe and they're you know uh, and so really it's this idea of like you would think in uh climate change that we we're just trying to ra raise awareness but we're actually trying to fight state corruption um and i think i would say i would quantify artists versus extinction as a group that like either has where all of the artists have realized that there is one there's a risk of collapse mm -hmm. you know ecological biological and two that the what is causing the collapse is like state capture or corruption or like like essentially like unscientific ideas about what does the oil industry actually give us you know in return for all this extraction um and i think on, on those two-pronged approach, that's where it can work. But it, I think we're way beyond the uh, information deficit model of change. So that's what we're up against. Um, as a group of artists versus extinction, we've done uh, virtual exhibitions uh, with uh, Tamara Chang, Sean Bodley, and Errol Matita. Uh, we've painted posters, the kind of art calling civilians to protect biodiversity against extraction. But there is also a need for pragmatic closing design. Mm -hmm. Closing design, I don't mean clothes that you wear, I mean closing as you as in you, you close something, it's the end. Um, and it's the it, it's a practice where artists are practicing the art of saying goodbye to obsolete futures. That's what closing design means. And an obsolete future is obviously uh, the oil industry and all of like the extractiveness, you know, related to that. Um, one of the reasons why, you know, it's an obsolete future is like the energy return on energy invested of the oil industry, which is um, that, you know, imagine like the, the history of oil. I don't know if you've seen like the good, the bad and the ugly, 
the Western? Probably quite a while back. I, I, can't, I can't recall uh, it at the moment. Though. And essentially, they're looking for a treasure, mm -hmm. right? But the treasure is oil. And then at the end, they just, just like, uh, I think they shoot or they, they, they knock something over and oil starts flowing from the ground. Uh, you know, it's just free. Like, barely any mechanical labor was inputted from you as a human to get mechanical energy that is stored in oil. That is really powerful. There's a house of civilizations, like, kind of like rose very, very quickly, you know, at a rate that they rose up from the ground. But, like, that energy return used to be, you put one barrel of work, like, say, one year of just, you know, toiling the earth really, really hard every day. That's like one barrel worth of mechanical energy. But you got 99 barrels out. That was your ratio at the time. It was a really, really good deal. Mm -hmm. But now it's more like one to seven with tar sands, which means that to get the same amount of oil, like useful oil, oil net oil, you have to extract a lot more. So the, the intensiveness of the extraction per useful energy is much higher. And that's why it's, a, it's an obsolete feature. It, it, it goes to infinity, which means like to extract the last gram, the last drop of oil, you would have to destroy the entire earth, right? This is when the efficiency hits zero, basically, you have to destroy the entire earth to get the last drop. And we obviously have to stop before that. <laughs> we all agree that we have to stop before that. But the, the efficiency is already one to, to seven and, and, you know, and governments and corporate, you know, um, corporations are still continuing this plan. Um, so that is definitely like, you know, a dire situation. I guess the first thing that comes to mind immediately is that uh, as an artist, the only way to counter the narrative is to tell better narratives that you have of your own and what possible yeah. visions that you have, um, as a group, are you perhaps working on these visions which you think are the alternative way to move forward? Because there's only so much that a person not involved in these companies or politics can do at a policy level because that's not mm -hmm. what an artist's job is at the end of the day. But you can tell better visions. So what kind of stuff do you think? Yeah. Well, there is a there is two things. Um, I think reputationally... Um, like the oil industry has a lot to lose from young people not wanting to work for them. So just talking about it is just valuable within itself because it will make uh, workers a lot more expensive for the oil industry, which will accelerate its collapse, right? So there's a goal there. It is, it, it is a goal. Um, secondly, um, I think you can, yeah, represent an alternative future and also have a lot of imagination in this alternative future, right? So you have alternative futures like solar punk, where it's kind of like, yeah, you have technology and you have all this like magic of technology, but you also bring back nature to like better than it is right now. You restore it to like, at least like it was in the eighties or sixties, you know what I mean? Like, let's like bring it back and, and like rewild things and like, let's try to essentially be back from the brink, you know, from the brink of extinction and uh, turn the ship around. Um, and there are many like visions for it. I think one of the visions for it that to me is the most pragmatic and realistic and reassuring is this idea that um, we could go back to 1960s level of consumption and electricity consumption and heating, and you could have 10 billion humans. To me, that's an extremely positive story. So that's the study uh, that I read online. And yeah, it was uh, showing that like energy sufficiency um, means that like, what is, you know, what do you need to be comfortable instead of being in excess, you know? And essentially, everybody can be comfortable. That's the message. Sufficiency is a lot more uh, permissive, you know, than opponents uh, propose.
other like existing pieces of fiction or literature that people can read through a story or a narrative which subliminally puts this message across without coming across as like a technical paper which i'm pretty sure not everyone will have the patience to actually sit and read that yeah so that is a problem um we're it's sort of like a, a I don't know if it's an insurmountable problem, but you have to be aware of the problem to actually try to work on it, mm -hmm. which is that um, there's a information is either complex and inaccessible or like not complex and accessible, basically. And it's sort of, you know, there's sort of like a curve of like how many people are going to read your thing versus how in-depth actually is your thing. Right. And a lot of climate fi fiction, which is often called a cli-fi, mm -hmm. was... Um, written in the tradition of hard sci-fi, which is uh, nuts and bolts, spaceships and equations and orbital trajectories and like moons colliding and all this, all this stuff, you know? Um, and so I think a lot of writers have tried essentially approaching uh, climate change with this hard sci-fi lens. And I think the result is that nobody has read it, right? Because it is so complex. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between your cli-fi and a paper? Why would I read that? Like, why would I read dystopia, right? Instead of paying attention. So we actually need climate utopias or climate protopias, right? So there is a Monica, uh, Monica Bielski mm -hmm. uh, who is uh, working on the protopia framework, which is like uh, this idea of like, you know, it's not utopia or uh, dystopia. It's kind of like in work, right? It's in movement, in the process of creation. And it's not one future, it's multiple futures. It's the recognition of the multiple futures. And um, I, I'm just really inspired by all those visions. So I think there are more, today there are more like frameworks. In two to three years, they're your favorite movies and films. This is the eco-punk cinematic universe coming for you. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting way to put it because let's be real, not, nobody can actually predict what a utopia could look like, whether it's like climate positive or in a dystopian manner, what might happen, nobody actually knows. Mm -hmm. But these frameworks could be possibilities which are stories in progress where you don't know how things actually end up. And that's a more mm -hmm. plausible way to tell a narrative of this kind. Yeah, because all you have is like the, the present mm -hmm. and the belief that it will get better. That's really all you have. And like, um, I think it's like we have to maybe, yeah, have a framework of future making that essentially takes this into account, um, where you have this sort of, like, ideals of, of um, there are little, like, I have trouble with, which is, like, you know, nations and states mm -hmm. and all of these apparatus that have been, you know, motivated to, you know, um, revolt against kings and stuff. So they, they have, like, a history where, like, some of them have a good history and people really are proud of these nations and these states. But to a certain point, when, you know, when like 80% of the population lives in coastal cities and you have sea level change, the artificial nature of borders and states is going to be ridiculous. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, you're going to have, I think, maybe due to racism and the classism of like who has been really impacted by climate change, which means that like essentially the rich people can leave the city and leave their house behind. It doesn't matter they think their lives, you know, their lives are worth more than the house. Mm -hmm. And the people who are poor also think that. It's just that they can't afford to act on that belief right. that their life is more valuable. And that's horrible. Like, think about that. They can't act on their belief that their life is more valuable than property. And 
that is a form of lack of freedom that is is uh, definitely it needs to be unlocked for everybody to be safe from climate change. And I think this is something where like story we tell, it's the it's the financial model of the companies we create, mm-hmm. you know, that allow people mobility, uh, and it's also the way we think about housing in the way that people feel comfortable leaving their housing because you have to leave. It's a disaster. Like you have to leave everything behind and think about your new life somewhere else. This actually gone, you know? instantly reminded me about the movie Elysium, where this aspect was played out in a story manner quite yeah, well, yeah. where you could see Very, that yeah. the yeah. poorer <laughs> section. Stereotypical, yeah. yeah. Um, so something I wanted to talk about was in other design fields apart from art, like if you talk about product design or architecture, fashion, there is quite a lot of emphasis about sustainable design practices at the educational level, whereas in mm-hmm. art, that's not something that's spoken about because people are given the freedom to perhaps talk about whatever subject that they might want to talk about. Yeah. And hence... Which is great. Which is great in a way where you have the freedom to talk about the things that you want to talk about. But I guess the downside of that is that you don't really learn about what sustainable art could mm-hmm. be. So how do you think people can actually yeah. be made more aware of those things? Um, yeah. So there's a there's a couple things that I can talk about, um, about sustainability and art. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say you can break it down into two main categories. Um, actually, you can say three, but let's say we just forget about money for a second. We're going to talk about the other ones which are interesting. Okay. Um, let's talk about like the social aspect of art. Uh, right now, it's really hard to make art and make art that feels meaningful through if you're posting it on social media. The reason why is because the social media is like, uh, it's essentially at war, at economic war for your attention. And like, it's got the best algorithm in class mm-hmm. to hold your attention and to do all of those things. And you're essentially competing against the same HBO ad that you've seen 19 times for Euphoria. <laughs> I don't know if you've had it too, maybe it's just in the US. But if you're in the US, you've seen this ad 15, 20, 30 times. And your piece of content, your piece of art is fighting for attention against all of these like multi-billion dollar production that have ads, you know, every third swipe of uh, swipe of stories Mm -hmm. so i would say whatever art you create right now maybe forget about the social media just think about your art and the legacy that you're creating for yourself because the future will listen to your art (laughs) whether or not the present listens to it Mm -hmm. because of the construction of how social media and attention is divided on internet it's so unequal it's not your fault if your art is not getting attention or it's not like you know if nobody cares it might not be the fault of your art. It might be the ecosystem of attention that we have currently. But know that it is temporary. People are working on fixing it, but people are working on keeping it too, yeah. right? So <laughs> there's something to be aware of. Um, the second thing is in relation to art and sustainability is the electrical usage um, of CPU and GPUs. Um, so we have machines that make digital art or we have paintbrushes, right? Paintbrushes is easy to know, easy to quantify. You have a tube. It's a diffuse metal that was extracted from the earth, right? We have words like cadmium, zinc, right? Cadmium yellow, cadmium red. So those are all colors and that come from metals. Those are diffusive uses. So in Philip P. Wick's uh, L'Age de Low-Tech, it's a French book on the age of low-tech, which means like we have high-tech now, we're going to have low-tech in the future, which means more like a bike, you know, or like a manual, you know, agricultural uh you know, mechanical thing that spins, mm-hmm. you know, and does a lot of smart things, but mechanically. Okay. Um, and so in this book, he talks about the myth of, you know, uh, recycling and the circular economy. 
and goes into saying that, like, well, we're not going to scrape white walls for titanium white, right? Because it's titanium dioxide right. on the white color. But that titanium white comes from sand in the beach, sometimes in India, actually, whether you're trying to mine for thorium to make nuclear electricity or for things, it's like they will go wherever there is the least amount of rights and just mine, you know, like beautiful natural, natural places. Like, and they're just going to, you know, use it for colors. But our computers are the exact same thing, you know, and, but there are ways to reduce it, which are really, really uh, interesting, right? So, I mean, obviously, if you're doing a painting, it's kind of sad, right? You have to paint smaller and you have to paint, <laughs> you have to paint like a uh, watercolor and, you know, uh, gum Arabic, you know, but it's totally doable. And there is obviously the tradition for doing it sustainably is older mm -hmm. than the tradition of doing it for the capitalist system which is actually wonderful because at that time right. there was scarcity of resources to actually get those exactly and things. so yeah exactly so if you you it had to be natural so if you think about lamp uh, black or ivory black it's crushed bones that are burned right mm -hmm. it's very easy to get to get black color um and so now you're thinking okay i'm a digital artist how can i reduce you know my electricity usage uh how can i be more effective how can i and actually, it's not just about your electricity usage. It's also about your usage of the cloud, uh, which could be storage or it could be streaming. So streaming in 4K and storage, like hundreds of gigs of storage in the cloud, that is something that will like, decrease the sustainability of your art, if that's something that is related to the production of your art or something that you want to decrease. So what you can do is watch videos. Like if, it's not, if you're not watching a video that has like interface on it, watch it in 480p or 360p. If it's music, Watch it in 140p. It doesn't matter. It's the same codec for music, same codec for sound, right? Why would you use the extra data if you're just using YouTube for music? Um, that's one way. But then the other way is thinking about, okay, what machine are you using? You know, is it like, um, is it like a desktop, mm -hmm. you know, which is using 250 watts, up to 250 watts of, uh, of power at all times, which means like every second, 300 watts have to be generated somewhere and sent to your computer. Uh, here in California, it's a lot of solar, and we have a little bit of wind, and we have some like water, you know, that runs down a gravity pipe and generate a turbine. That's a little bit later in the evening, but in, in the evening and at night, it's natural gas. Mm -hmm. That's that doesn't make me very happy. So what I try to do is concentrate my work during the day, so that you know, or during uh, concentrate my work, which is on heavy machines, machines that use more watts, during the peak of the solar noon, <laughs> wow. right? So I'm I'm actually tying my art to the ISO, you know, uh, reporting of California on the grid to find the lowest, you know, the peak lowest uh, carbon emissions per watt. I mean, does, to does do my work on planning your entire day around what kind of output of electricity is being generated, does it hamper your thought process about the actual art no, that you're trying to make? No, it's the future. That is the future. Mm -hmm. It is the future in that, like, it's more like I'm getting prepared for it because I know that brownouts and uh which means like you know it's when everybody tries to use the ac in the summer and it, so they're like you know the grid just goes like no <laughs> too much you know um and so but for for my friends who are in the global south today the power cuts are happening already so i just see it as it's happening to them it will happen to me in 10 years so i just got to get ready for power cuts and making art that is that works with power cuts mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Uh, so I've been like essentially downgrading 
voluntarily downgrading, you know, my setup from like the really, really big thing to just essentially an iPad, you know, and like in a cloud machine that I can access from time to time. Um, but it's like off, you know, 99% of the time, essentially your, your big rig that uses 250 watts is off and you have like a small tablet, you know, it could be a Surface, it could be an iPad, or it could even be like an Android phone, you install Linux on it. And then you have like a Bluetooth, uh, like Wacom, you know, or whatever. And then you have a screen. It still works. Wow. It's all doable. You can also have a Raspberry Pi and all of those things can use five watts or phone uses five watts and iPad uses five watts, Raspberry Pi uses five watts. So, and I think it's important to know numbers. The reason why is because the fossil fuel industry will constantly lie to us about what the future looks like if we have less energy. But I can tell you right now, I've just did an efficiency. I've went from 250 to five. So already you can have massive gains. We're just not looking, you know? And of course, like everybody, you know, who knows a little bit about climate change will tell you like, oh, but that's unconsequential. Your 250 watts are unconsequential compared to, you know, massive trucks and airplanes for the military and C, you know, C-130, you know, constantly patrolling the skies and stuff like this. But at least you've demonstrated that it was possible. And by me talking to you right now with like, you know, I've kind of like, put it on the internet out there that it was possible to decrease your consumption, to make the uh, power generation of the oil industry like less relevant, yeah. to make their argument weaker. And I, we and I also energy. saw a couple of posts on your Instagram page where you had demonstrated these things. I, I think if I remember correctly, you were running Blender on your iPad through a renewable power resource and you were working completely remotely at that point. And that was the first time that I yeah. was seeing the setup like that. So that was pretty interesting to see. Yeah. So that was with the Raspberry Pi uh, connected via USB-C directly to the iPad. And then, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. It's using the USB mm-hmm. as like a local internet port. Okay. And then you open that port and you say, I want to connect you know, using secure you know, SSH. I want to connect to the Raspberry Pi and open it up inside. It's just kind of ridiculous. So I, but, I'm, and, I'm um, completely like unaware of these things. So what exactly is Raspberry Pi? Is that like an operating system? What is that? Yeah. So no, it's a uh, it's a uh, this right here. I mean, uh, you can't see it on screen uh, uh, because it's a podcast. So I'm going to describe it. It's kind of like a little black box. It fits inside of uh, of my hand. It's a little bit bigger uh, than a, a little bit thicker than a phone, but a little bit smaller. And uh, if you open the cover, you see essentially these green bits, uh, you know, of circuitry mm-hmm. and radiators and, and all these pins that are open input output, uh, you know, ports. And uh, on the other side is just all of your regular computer stuff, right? So you see a USB port, you see an Ethernet. And that means that it's, a, it's, a, it's like a phone in terms of what processor it has. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what you're allowed to do with it, it's a computer. Uh, and in terms of the port, it's a computer. And what that means is that you can run uh, your blog on it. You can self-host services. You can run a next cloud, which is basically like Google Cloud, but privately owned, you know. And it introduces this notion because it's so um, energy efficient, right? It's five watts and I think a one watt idle. Uh, so it's very energy efficient. And it, this efficiency unlocks the idea of self-hosting services. Mm-hmm. And that to me is is like a source of hope in that when the internet goes down, if it goes down, like there's already communities building secure local internet, you know, that will come back up like a week later, a month later, you will have a sort of internet, you know, internet will come back. I see. And that's an interesting idea, you know, that like 
we already have the tools that like even if we're fleeing a disaster with like water in my backpack i can still have a blog that's really weird that's a weird idea well we will, we will be able to tell each other things about the way we experience disasters you know this uh it won't be hd it won't be 4k but we will be able to tell each other about the ways we're dying and that's really weird yeah i mean the ability to communicate still remains this almost sounds like a good movie or story ready to be told because <laughs> yeah, there yeah. is like a Again, clear plot I, line within that and a solution coming out of that yeah yeah it's a uh, yeah it's rough i don't want to be too uh pessimistic because like a lot of a lot of people are pessimistic already i think i think things have the possibility to improve mm-hmm. i just think it's naive to think that things are self correcting yeah that's a good way to put it again it always comes back to that aspect of what the narrative is because if you look at the stories that were told in the early 1900s there was a certain narrative in the 1950s mm-hmm. that changes and then in the 2000s there's a different kind of narrative yeah and um adam smith in the in the wealth of the, sorry to go back to like the narrative like adam smith in the wealth of nation um he, i think that's this is where it was defined that um you have capital and you have labor but nature does not exist mm. and uh the definition of it is um nature is god's gift to man no god's inextinguishable gift to man right and the word inextinguishable which means like it never runs out right and it was ingrained in the american psyche in the american psyche of like business and success and being successful and and having power is this idea that nature is god's gift to man so it's fine <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> it's uh, you mentioned adam smith because his writings were quite a big proponent during the city planning of the early 1900s mm. and a lot of the bigger cities that we see across the world right now were built on those economic philosophies that eventually created the kind of cities that we see now yeah 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 the the kind of like when we say the city mm-hmm. we mean like the city as the center of finance so we mean london paris and new york mm-hmm. like these these feel like empire cities you know like it definitely in the, in their construction yeah empire cities yeah it's, city it's fascinating i mean again whenever i mean this kind of a topic when we talk about these things it it can feel quite overwhelming as well because for me personally yeah. i've never really read up that much about it and you are giving me a lot of data and points to think about and the first thing that i'm wondering is okay what can i actually change as a single artist right like or a storyteller what mm-hmm, can mm-hmm. one storyteller actually do yeah um honestly i think i think the best thing that artists can do is um look into the cooperative labor model and the reason why i say this is because the experience of democracy at work i think will change people's minds right because like you may have experienced like voting once or twice in your life but the the experience of decision making in a cooperative and voting i think could change the the workers mind in the way that like you would then demand the same thing in the public sphere mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah. and i think is that we've accepted so much in the business sphere that now the business sphere is trying to encroach onto the public sphere and what can artists do it's not accept just understand that there's another world out there mm-hmm. and that we're prevented from accessing that other world and that we're prevented from accessing that other world by essentially i don't like using that word but the class enemies you know that their goals are not aligned to yours and um there's a report called uh pandemic play thunder executive excess and they found that during 2021 um 
a bunch of the Fortune 500 companies that like to bend rules bent the executive limit pay rules to uh, have a pay ratio of 1,800 to 1, which means like the ratio between the CEO and the median worker. Mm. And to me, that highlights this idea that it is it is truly they are truly class enemies in the sense that like they've done it uh, to to a violent you know to a violent um degree uh that like it they it happened during a pandemic you know <laughs> like um like they fired workers mm-hmm. and then they had no health insurance they you know and they uh they underpaid the workers. They made them work extra hours. They did all of those things and paid themselves extra during a pandemic. And we like, we knew there was dangerous conditions, right? And they still did it. And so to me, it shows that like, they, they truly don't care about you. And they've publicly stated it multiple times. I don't know why you're still confused <laughs> about the nature of like this relationship right now. And that's why we need to change. And I think, um, simply reclaiming your power like i just like whoever's listening reclaim your power because you have it like the means of production are not that complicated to learn the machines are offered for free you know uh so like you can have free machines in the cloud every every cloud service out there is competing to give you free hardware you know to run and compile and build your games on like um the the, the yeah the problem will be attention yeah. And the economics of those games that if you're trying to make a cooperative to get yourself out of this toxic relationship of employment within firms, your game will have to be successful if you want to sustainably get yourself, uh, you know, create a new model of employment, create a new model of democracy. At work. It, you will have to also uh, be a commercial success. That is, the, that is the trick. And that is why, like, you know, I support UBI, uh, like, whenever it needs to come, because... Um, and it needs to come now, you know, because the, the, a lot of the jobs are automated and I look at, I look at like the rate of automation of jobs and it's, uh, a lot of the workers that are quitting are apparently quitting jobs that are already on the verge of automation, which means like, like nobody will replace them anyway. Uh, you know, and, um, (laughs) I remember making this bet with my dad that like, think like by 2030, like there would be 40% unemployment. <laughs> we won't quite get there, but like it, you know, the, the numbers could get quite dramatic uh, with, with automation. And I don't mean by that, that like artists are done and everything is that we have to change the relationship. It's not about employment anymore. And I think the, this, this new world is approaching really, really fast. It's not going to be distributed equally as always. And that sucks. But I think the great, the good thing is that there hasn't been a better time to create your own products just sitting in your own house because mm-hmm. all the tools are available yeah. for free. I mean, there is enough tools available for free to build a game from scratch, to build a movie from scratch. Yeah. And you can really tell and your stories. Yeah. And you can ask for money. Like, you, like the internet has, I think, lowered the stigma on asking for money. Mm-hmm. And that's good. Like, hey, I need 75 bucks for this license, for this software. I can't afford it. Can anybody pay it for me? Yes. Yes, I can. Here it is. And like no questions asked, no nothing. Like I think it's I think it's quite wonderful. I think uh, there is this sort of like mutual aid in game dev. Yeah. Uh, mutual aid culture in game dev that is developing. And I think that's quite beautiful. I think that's also because everyone knows how hard it is to ship a product. So they are more willing mm-hmm. to help each other out versus in the AAA scene because everyone is highly competitive. And they also need to, yeah. you know, deliver a good product at the end of the day otherwise the company will crash mm-hmm. so the 
mentality is different there and i guess that yeah. kind of drives that factor i also just wanted to touch upon the oil painting series that you had done because those were again yeah. a set of visions that you had that you were wanted to wanting to portray but then you went into the oil painting realm which is not something that you see concept artists so to speak do regularly yeah um that was kind of like i think representative of my mental states in relationship to climate grief mm-hmm. in that this was my my anger or fear stage you know this was like my darkest moment in that like i really had no hope i really thought that like yeah billions of people are going to die I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know if billions of people are going to die. I think it's going to be definitely really hard. Um, but, you know, it could be something else than complete horror on Earth, you know? But at that point, I was really thinking that it would be extremely rough. It would be rougher, you know? And I thought, well, there's no way that digital art is going to get archived, <laughs> right? Um, if, if it takes electricity to power right and if uh like people need to know that there is something valuable on that data drive to conserve it and if the 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 life expectancy of the data on that drive because it's solid state you know storage is about 50 years tops right uh you know they're selling cd drives that are like 25 years or 100 years or millennium drives you know mm-hmm. but the reality is like the data will get corrupted after 25 years and 50 years it will get corrupted and maybe about 100 years can't read it anymore and i was thinking like well then all of the digital art will get lost then like there's no way that anybody will archive all this stuff like it's gone and if i care about i was thinking that like oh maybe future generation could be interested in the idea that people knew things were going to collapse like you know way earlier than the 2020s mm-hmm. you know that like back in 2019, like those, you know, I mean, like people were already aware of those things and trying to raise awareness, you know, I don't know, I thought that that was important. And therefore the oil paintings, you know, uh, could be rolled, could be, you know, and they're always displayed image. It costs no electricity to display the image. And, but anyway, I don't, I don't think my paintings could be like now in retrospect, I'm like, what? Who would these paintings even be for? That doesn't make any sense, you know? So I think I, 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 I'm okay with my previous work being like an experiment and that it doesn't necessarily always fulfill all of my needs, you know, and didn't necessarily land where I wanted to land. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think definitely. So, sorry to interrupt you, but I think that's a good lesson yeah. in general, whether you're trying to, I mean, whether it's about solar punk or just art in general, that not every piece needs to be successful. Like there will be failed experiments yeah. along the way, which eventually lead you to whatever you end up doing after that yeah and yeah and while the 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 series itself like i mean those paintings are like right now they're on the on the right right now Mm -hmm. um in in the closet you know i mean wrapped in cloth like i don't don't even know how they're doing maybe they could be like really destroyed i don't know um but there's one uh that i actually display which is the painting of a boat you know and the cargo ship that is uh, destroyed and this is where i think i this one was successful and that i landed a dichotomy in between uh, you have, you know, progress that we're told is scale and efficiency and speed at any cost. And on the right is a ship that is traditional, slow, small, puny, all those things, but it's still running. And the other one isn't, you know, and this idea of resilience and technological progress. What is progress really? When, when like, because when shit hits the fan, 
you look at the technologies that people are using, it is not the technologies we are using today. It is like low tech and it's really ingenious and it really works and it's reliable. And I think it's time to kind of like, you know, there, there's a sort of arrogance to tech. Like you need to realize that your tech is not always the best way to solve a problem. Yeah, I guess Sometimes I mean, like social tech, you know, yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, again, it's like constant state of progress or change that's always happening. I mean, when you were mentioning whether mm -hmm. the drives will even be readable 50 years from now, the first thing that I think about is like floppy disks, which were so common all the yeah. time 30 years back. But now we don't even have a port to actually access that drive anymore in our houses. Yep. So yep. that's always changing exactly. no matter what you do. Yeah. Um. So you are also working on this anthology series called Ecocide. So is that part of art versus uh, artist versus extension, or is this something of your own? Yeah. That, so that would that would something that would be. Uh, I mean, like it's like a personal project, mm -hmm. you know, that I do, uh, and I post my sketches and stuff on the server. Mm -hmm. And um, it it definitely is the type of art that like other people also post on the on the server. I see. So it's like yeah, that is a very closely related. And so, yeah, this Ecosite Inc. series is really to, you know, raise awareness um, and more, like, question directly, you know, in that, like, the oil industry needs social license, right? And social license is, like, us thinking that the oil industry is our friend, is not our enemy, is not trying to kill us, is uh, helpful, and is the source of prosperity, right? And, uh, and is good for the economy and all of those things. And when you attack that, when you reveal, you know, environmental crimes. So, for example, I put a painting, and then I tell the truth, which is the story of the environmental crime that they did. So, for example, like Shell, uh, you know, I paint, paint it like destroying some village. It's because they destroyed some of the village in in Nigeria, and they killed, you know, Ogoni activists, you know, who were trying to uh, rebel against the fossil fuel uh, like pipelines, you know, that are now destroying the delta, you know. And so it, it's, I think it's, you just reveal the, um, the legacy of those companies. Mm -hmm. And I think that already has, you know, a, a value in itself because then people go at the pump, they see ExxonMobil logo, they see a BP logo, a Shell logo, a Total logo. There's not that many companies and all of them have horrible uh, disasters. Like if you look into your community, wherever you're from, look at the history of it. There is, I can almost guarantee you there has been an oil spill somewhere like <laughs> it, it's, you know, and if, if you can't find anything, that doesn't mean nothing has happened, by the way, you know, newspapers are not always reliable. Mm -hmm. you, you look at the newspaper in the present, what are they telling us? Okay, now look back and think 200 years of the newspapers, you know, uh, it's not always telling the truth. It's not always covering everything, uh, you know, and there's a lot of work to uncover you know, uh, the truth about what exactly have the oil companies done to us socially, culturally, technologically. And um, I think one of my next painting will be about like uh, the propaganda of oil industry in schools, because mm -hmm. that's extremely insidious and that like creeps me out. Oh, that's interesting. I think, I mean, propaganda is an interesting and a good word because the most common aesthetic that we see generally in films and movies today is of that cyberpunk vision which which was relevant when it was written originally in the 1970s, 1980s. Mm -hmm. And that has essentially defined media in a sense 
over the, over the next 50 years at that point yeah so and it's retro it's not even current yeah exactly it's neon we don't even use neon anymore but <laughs> what is this aesthetic why but i guess the question that i'm trying to arrive at beyond that is like for a younger artist who's trying to break into the industry where their primary focus mm-hmm. is to earn a living and not really worry about the socio political ramifications of yeah you know climate yeah. change how can they actually let's say tune their mind to search for references which allow them to create better stories and newer mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. yeah so um i would love to encourage anyone to just don't be afraid to read like scientific papers mm-hmm. and literally read the abstract and then scroll down to see images okay like that's that was my introduction to science and it's fine and you start to read a little bit more of the paper and then you start to sort of like make a link between the different papers and then you have the vocabulary to google literally the term you're looking for which is in relation to for example like climate solutions so for example uh, i know to google decarbonize shipping if i want to look for ships you know what i mean that have like uh, sails on them right or apparatus you know that can move with the wind propulsion you know and so it's essentially building yourself a library of mental keywords that you're fi- you're looking at an image oh, i want a futuristic thing but that does like what is this thing? It's turbine, but it's vertical. Okay, you know, like a vertical wind turbine and knowing that those exist and knowing the shape of it and having a library of like, have a shape in your head that looks cool, that looks a certain way and then have the name for it. And then you can Google it and always find that, you know, find it back Mm -hmm. or you can save those right offline. And then you can find yourself a library of future technologies, of future solutions. So for example, if you look at the look of solar panels today, they have a certain look because they are manufactured from silicon right. and from uh, if they're a fin film, they're cadmium telluride or uh, gallium arsenide. And the result is that they have a certain look. So the gallium arsenide, um, they are a little bit brown. They are the ones that we see on the, um, uh, on the ISS. And then the blue ones with the crystals, you know, are the polycrystalline. And then the black ones with the thin, you know, the thin lines are the thin film. And so you already have three technologies and three looks. So Obviously, future technologies are going to have future looks and future aesthetics, Mm -hmm. and you can predict those as a concept artist. That is a a, a future mapping, right? Think of this 2D space and those data points of all those different designs. The aesthetic of Solarpunk is a a boundary that contains all of those data points, Um, and anybody can define that boundary of what Solarpunk means to them. But what really is true that, that we're reacting to is the fact that there was a collection of points that are grouped together that all of those things point towards a positive future in which like the combination of uh, indigenous you know, knowledge and uh, governance and sovereignty over the lands and technology can actually uh, uh, you know, like heal the earth on time or stop destroying it mm-hmm. so that nature can heal itself. Yeah, I guess that developing a new visual library and a visual vocabulary to allow you to create those kind of artworks is quite important. Yeah. But so quantum solar dots, solar panel, for example, right? This is technology. It doesn't exist yet. People are working on it, but it could exist. And if it did exist, then it would have a certain look. And you can imagine it, right? And so I looked at the paper, and the way that it works is that it has uh, different wavelengths of a dot that is sort of like printed in nanometer scale on a surface. Mm -hmm. And it sort of like traps the light and converts it to electrons. Okay. But it's a shape, and they can change the width of a sort of like point of light that will receive uh, this exact nanometer wavelength. And so essentially they print a shape that will receive 
the maximum potential light from sunlight, right? Including uh, infrared. So it's trying to capture some infrared, which uh, solar panels have traditionally not been great at capturing. Um, and so, but this would have a look or sort of like microscopic dots of light on the surface. Mm -hmm. Like it looks magical. Like, and, and I think that's what concept artists uh, were doing when they were trying to do those like cy cyberpunk stuff at the time. It's like, okay, we have this new lighting. We didn't have as much lighting before. We have so much colored lighting with these neons, right? Okay, we're gonna have an aesthetic based on neons. Yeah. But now we're gonna have quantum solar panels. We're gonna have decarbonized ships with wind propulsion. We're gonna have velomobiles, you know, that are like, um, um, they are this bicycle that you're um, um, sitting down on, okay. you know, um, laying down on, you know, horizontal bicycle. <laughs> Uh, with like a, a fuselage, right? So it's aerodynamic okay. and you could have a, sol a quantum dump solar panel on that and you could run your five watt phone or your iPad and so you could like take calls <laughs> while, you know, while skiing and you could have a little fan that blows a little cool air. And the experience of that vehicle or of those future technologies is not the same as the slow, reliable, huge, you know, cargo ships or the cars that we have today. It's a little bit more adventurous. It makes the world bigger mm -hmm. as a result, you know. Um, but it's interesting. You could have a vehicle that, like, has less features, but, like, a lot more range as a result. Yeah, that's you an know? interesting way. To, I mean, the way you actually broke it down to actually create a fictional vehicle is an interesting approach. To me, I think the biggest drawback that I've seen in so-called solar punk artwork is that they always try to portray some sort of a utopic, idealistic vision. But it really doesn't mm -hmm. feel grounded enough to feel believable. Yeah. Nobody's taken, yeah. let's say, a 20-year-from-today approach to see how technology could be slightly shifted. Where, like, for example, mm -hmm. Black Mirror did it in a darker tone. Like, what would a positive yeah. tone in the same time frame look like? And that would be something yeah. interesting. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely um, more along those lines. I do think um, there's, the, there's the possibility of like technological change, but I do, I do think it's completely ridiculous mm -hmm. that um, it, it can't essentially solar punk. If it looks like a brochure from Silicon Valley version of sustainability, mm -hmm. it's a failure. Right. Right. It, it should be like with the hands in the dirt, like the solar panels are covered in dirt. You need to clean them every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's a lot more realistic and it's like the solar panel doesn't always output all the watts that you need it to. Yeah. So you need to cut some services from time to time, you know what I mean? Go being pragmatic, you know? And I think it's sort of like a version of that, but where like, oh, I don't have enough battery for my iPad. Okay, I'll continue with a fountain pen. But like show a character that isn't living this as a trauma is just used to it. Uh, that's a good you know? point. And, yeah. and show people that are happy because we are taught that we will leave degrowth and energy descent as a trauma. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be. It can be an adventure. It can be wonderful. And I think it's this recentering, uh, you know, this uh, this change of narrative frame that will help. Yeah. Something unrelated, but the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix, I actually... I really like that movie and something that really sticks out to me is that even though it's a science fiction movie, it's like a very warm tone, very, very bright mm -hmm. tone film. And that I feel is a good way to shift the narrative of what future could look like, even though the story within yeah. that is something else. But just the way they portrayed what future could look like was quite interesting there. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's very difficult because mm -hmm. our imagination immediately 
because disaster mm. and pain and, and all those things that we know are happening today mm. and uh, we don't want them to be happening in the future but it's like like in order for them not to be happening in the future there's a need to confront them directly you know and um yeah i really wonder about you know whether or not like are you really making the art to raise awareness mm -hmm. or are you hoping that some of the people who are already aware will see the art and then be motivated to direct action you I know nonviolent direct action but the problem is the limitation of nonviolent direct action is always that you get arrested and that the state doesn't support it you know what i mean so you go block a pipeline and you get arrested for 20 days and like you you know what i mean and eventually it doesn't, uh, I mean, it's like, it's necessary. And it's the only thing we have. And it's like the last line of resistance. But it feels like, um, it sometimes doesn't feel like enough. It feels like if, if really my paintings is to influence more people to move to nonviolent direct action, then am I doing people a disservice? Because is nonviolent direct action like, you know, like, it, like enough? Or are the ways that people are doing nonviolent direct action to, to attempt to stop the oil industry like not working you know or not scalable and if they're not scalable it's a problem and this is this is where it gets a little tricky with with climate change because um you have to be responsible because you know um most people are essentially like not aware of climate change and kind of like in their bubble mm -hmm. and once you tell them about it they immediately want the solution but the 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 truth is we need everybody working on it and thinking about it because it's the fact that we're not all thinking about it yeah. that is, you know, the problem. At a more practical level, let's say, do you have, I mean, do you open up art mentorships where people or artists and designers who have a similar way of looking at the world where they could actually learn from you who's somebody quite invested in this uh, solar punk art movement where they can actually, rather than starting from scratch, they can get the benefit of learning from you directly since you've already spent quite a bit of time researching about it. Uh, I don't feel ready to mentor anyone, mm -hmm. but I can, yeah, uh, if anybody wants. Uh, what I like to do better is skill exchange mm -hmm. as well, because it kind of like equalizes things. It's not the idea of like a mentor or a mentee. It's the idea of like, you know something, you, you don't know, you know, I know something, you don't know something, you, I don't know something, you can teach me something, right. you know. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm like looking to learn programming. And so if there's anybody who learns programming where he's like even willing to learn programming, like the same you know programming language as I am alongside you know and then I'll teach you art you know it's yeah it's really that simple and definitely the artist specific extinction um I will add a invite to the channel so if anybody wants to yeah I'll definitely uh, add the link to that ask any in the question description of the yeah. episode so people can yeah you know look into that uh there will be a hundred invites um yeah and we post a lot of stuff in the uh resource channel and there's excellent books to kind of like uh, you know like get started on um like an introduction to the movements of people mm -hmm. who are trying to like get us out of this crisis, you know, or at least getting to acknowledging the crisis. So at least we don't feel alone, you know, and there's like, mm -hmm. um, there's really good books to start. Um, one of them is uh, Degrowth in Movements. Okay. Uh, Degrowth in Movements and uh, Pathways for Transformation. And so this one essentially goes into the different, you know, movements that are within the, the broader, you know, climate movement. And so you have uh, degrowth, uh, you have commoning. Commoning is, for example, like Creative Commons. We imagine Creative Commons and open source, mm -hmm. but like for food, 
That would be good. <laughs> I would like that. <laughs> that sounds delicious. You know what I mean? Like Blender is delicious. <laughs> so uh, that would be good. And so, um, so commenting is one. Uh, artivism is one. Artivism, the idea is to create space for dissent. Um, so, you know, telling people, you know, to disobey, you know, authority figures if the authority figures are, you know, creating plans that lead to extinction mm -hmm. or creating plans that lead to extreme worker alienation, you know. Uh, so it's about reclaiming the power. So, but I would uh, always activism, add that with the caveat that be aware of the reality that you live in within each country and not yes. not directly follow what might be acceptable in one place or the other. I think that's quite important to understand yeah. as well. Yeah, um, but definitely have an internationalist perspective mm -hmm. because I think there's no reason that anybody in any country should be paid less. Like that just pisses me off and I don't think we should accept it. Mm -hmm. um, I think, um, yeah, like it, it, there's, it, I think there should be an international perspective of labor in like in game dev and art and entertainment in that like we can actually ally to, to negotiate for better wages as a collective way, way better, you know? Right. Uh, so that is definitely something interesting to me. Wow. Eflam, this has been a surge of new information for me, really. It's been pretty interesting, this conversation. Never had this kind of a conversation. Thank you so much for your great before. questions. No, my pleasure, absolutely. I mean, for someone, I've, I've been seeing your work for quite a few years now. So actually having this conversation and understanding what your perspectives are is quite interesting. And I'm sure a lot of people must be relating with this thought process because obviously... Yeah, a lot of people in the you know, who have been sort of like um, dissatisfied with the model of firms mm -hmm. in entertainment mm -hmm. are moving to cooperative uh, ownership model. And like a lot of the people, you know, um, self-declare as being ideologically motivated mm -hmm. in that like, yeah, I think it's a change of story, a complete change of story in the relationship to work, in the relationship to power. And I think like, this, this act of reclaiming the power through at least attempting to, you know, form a worker cooperative, or at least thinking that like, hey, the next group of people I'm a part of, that there is no hierarchy, you know, existing hierarchy between us, mm -hmm. that there's no somebody is a boss, somebody isn't. That we can create, uh, you know, we can have co-creation where everybody is on the same level, but truly for democratic means, not for the, oh, we are a flat hierarchy, but we have a founder who can hire and fire anyone. <laughs> How is that flat? How is that flat? Tell me. Right. So no, to go to, you know, things where like the pay ratio, the pay gap, you know, 350 to one uh, between the CEO and the workers, that's unacceptable. In a lot of countries, culturally, uh, in Spain, for example, you say like anything above one to six, I don't work, <laughs> you know? is this this ratio of like you know in the Mondragon cooperative they wouldn't accept the 350 to 1 ratio that we have in the US um so this is where i think the internationalist perspective comes in definitely that's awesome um so just one like be aware of okay no sorry i was just saying like being aware of what other people have fought for yeah. and have gained no, I think, again, this ties back to the original point of actually reading up and spending the time to do the research before diving into these topics. Because, like you said, people have already worked on these aspects, whether be it through storytelling or through technical papers. So 
having that knowledge is quite important um one last question that i want to leave you with and you've obviously thought quite a bit about how the future of the world looks like in your vision but do you plan for your own life as well over the next 10 to 15 years or at a personal level you just take it maybe a day at a time or a year at a time so i used to have these like really big ambitious plans like five year plans and stuff mm-hmm. um i can't plan for that long anymore the world is too chaotic now <laughs> um but i was doing this this informal thing of mapping where you know i kind of have a piece of paper i draw a line in the middle this is the path of this and this is the path of this those are two options mm-hmm. kind of like ab testing right and one was the freelance route and the other one was like in house right and in house all had all these required steps of like what i thought i needed to do to get in house mm-hmm. and it happened a little bit earlier than i wanted to and in a way that like i have this false idea of my uh, freelance career being more developed than it is you know um or um so i think after this i was realizing that like no i think i actually want to build really the means of production like myself mm-hmm. and uh meaning the the entire process you know from like concepting game design uh, gameplay programming build engine automation the whole thing you know wow. that like uh and i've been really really inspired by like the creator of Stardew Valley and there was a book uh, ultra learning that kind of like had a passage on the, this creator of Stardew Valley and uh, i think it took 4 years and none of the skills that the creator of the game used was known you know at the beginning to them of the before, project at the beginning of the project and that's so inspiring that's like that's what i like to do you know i mean it's kind of like this thing of like this is obstacle course mm-hmm. and it's the fact that it's varied and unknown that is exciting you know and so um definitely my 10 year plan is uh to build productive capacities to be able to create ecopunk entertainment at like a good cadence and also like outside of the productivity of it it's that like the stories that come out are like i i like them and they feel like they represent you know the ideas of the people i interact with not the ideas of bosses oh. uh because the, 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 you know the fact if they are the founders and if they can hire and fire anyone any idea that you propose that is that reveals class dimensions could get you fired well you know i'm really looking forward to what kind of stories you come up with i think i mean you're definitely quite yeah. a prolific learner and creator of art so i'm sure you will keep on developing these ideas. I I would love to finish something. <laughs> I would love to finish something within the next 10 years. I would love to make a game called The Shipyard. Mm-hmm. Uh about the the you know journey to decarbonize shipping. So all the way from like small boats of a sail to like giant containers that you retrofit with a million kites and which are blades on the top of the containers, you know, to catch some wind. Um so a wide range of solutions you know ranging from all the way to that but put that in a video game so that people can exercise their imagination about what the future of solutions look like you know and what the future of sustainability looks like and i think uh that is definitely my goal is to create you know games that can really exercise this people's positive imagination about the future well i think that's a good note to end this conversation because it leaves us with a sense of wonderment i think i have a visual already of what these ships could look like potentially was really interesting. Um, this was a really fun conversation. Really fun as well. Well, have a great day ahead. Uh,